Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I'm a journalist, and I am here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And today, Helen, I'm so excited about this topic. I'm so glad that we found somebody who will talk to us about clothes in the ancient world. Of course there were clothes in the ancient world. <laughs> I know, exactly. But the thing is, we all have this image, don't we? We think we know what Jesus looks like. I mean, we could even draw him mm-hmm. based on largely on his clothes and his hairstyle. And yet, as we're going to find out, everything we think we know is completely wrong. So this is really, really fascinating. And also this whole thing about did Jews look different to mm-hmm. other people? Mm-hmm. You know, could you could you identify a Jew and a Gentile? Again, I think that's these are really fascinating things that you just kind of assume that you know yeah. you know what 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 they look like, but actually we don't. I just feel like should we name rename the podcast? No, you're wrong. I mean, it's something like that. Like, <laughs> I feel like the repeat the the repeated theme of every episode is: Did you think this was the case? Like you you got it you were wrong. You got it wrong, which is great. Which is what I love. I love I love being correct. I love having assumptions overturned so that's we're gonna be doing a lot of that today i'm gonna have a little teaser here folks i'm just gonna say one word socks (laughs) i knew what you were gonna say the socks aren't the best just remember and look for the part where we talk about socks um we had a great guest we're talking with katie turner katie is an independent scholar um she completed her phd at king's college london under our best friend joan taylor and uh, Katie is is busily working on a book called Costuming Christ, Redressing First Century Christians and Jews in Passion Dramas. So, you know, we, mm. we are all familiar with the when we put our kids in robes and wrap a towel around their head and we call them uh, <laughs> we call that <laughs> we call that, you know, Christmas uh, costumes. But I think Katie has a few things to say about how people yeah. actually dress and so she has that book coming out but um yeah let's let's get to our conversation with katie it's fabulous i hope you guys enjoy it too about clothing and dress and fashion in the first century hello katie turner and welcome to biblical time machine very happy to be here thanks for having me All right. We are talking about clothing in the first century. Most of us, our only reference point to what people look like back in the time of Jesus are movies and TV shows that we've seen about it. So I guess that's kind of my first question. When you watch movies about Jesus or TV shows or other videos, do people get it right for the most part? Or are you kind of screaming at the screen and saying, no, they would never wear that? What's... How are people doing nowadays? Maybe this is different than back in the 50s and stuff when they were making movies. I don't know. Mm. Um, I'm not screaming at the screen because if I was, I would lose my mind. Uh, (laughs) I think the most important thing for anybody to know ever is that no period drama is ever getting it right. Mm. Like, do not watch movies for history lessons. Um, (laughs) Costumes, especially, they are, I mean, the very best costumes in period dramas are grounded in a knowledge of the historical clothing of that period. But costume designers are not engaged in doing historical reproduction. They are engaged in storytelling. 
and world building. And so they are informed by the aesthetic that the cinematographer and the director want. They're informed by the script, by the characterization of each character. Um, what clo- The clothes that we wear in our body, they tell us things to other people. Mm. And so they're really important for communicating character. And so all these things, are they're there. They're layered on top of successful uh, period <laughs> costumes are layered on, on top of this historical grounding. In Jesus films, or really any biblical film, there is no historical grounding. It is just uh. entirely absent. Sometimes it's there for the Romans, although Romans are also frequently done incorrectly. <laughs> um, but there is like a little bit more accuracy there for Romans. But um, yeah, it's just straight up Christian artistic tradition. Uh-huh. And that Christian artistic tradition has some things that are theologically important. So we will see Mary often in blue and Mary Magdalene often in red. And mm. there's distinct reasons for those colors. And a lot of the Christian artistic tradition is also unfortunately um, just rife with anti-Semitism and mm. Orientalism. So that is ever present in Jesus films. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like that's that came up when we talked with Joan Taylor, who, who you know very well. We talked with Joan about kind mm-hmm. of, you know, what did Jesus look like? And, and it was so hard to escape the centuries and centuries of, of art and, and depictions of Jesus. So it's like, it sounds like yeah, it's, it's similar with, with the costuming. Well, so we were very excited to have you on the program because it seems like such an obvious thing that we would want to know what people wore back in this in this time period. But there's like hardly anything out there that that talks about this. So I don't know. I, I I feel like this is something you have a position on. Like, do you think clothing and dress are have been you know wrongly overlooked and undervalued as you know an important part of of understanding the history of of any time period and and particularly this the first century? Yeah, um, hugely so. <laughs> They're really, really central to understanding social, cultural, economic contexts of any time period ever. And uh, it's, yeah, it's an undervalued discipline, I think, in most historical fields. So, you know, it varies to degrees how much attention is given. Um, it's overwhelmingly a field studied by women, and that is part of its devaluing. Mm. And it's overwhelmingly a topic associated with women. And so that is part of its <laughs> devaluing, um, which is really unfortunate. I have um, a quote from Valerie Steele, who's the chief curator at FIT, which is Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And she said, Old clothes in general are so tied to the body and female bodies in particular that they have not been valorized as objects like paintings, which were seen as examples of male genius. Um. So I think that's that like really drives to some like the heart of kind of what's going on and why we don't pay attention to clothes. I think another thing is simply the modern world that we live in. We're really cut off from the means of production of clothing. Mm. We don't think about them intimately in the same way that we did in the past. I would say broadly speaking, plenty of people still think about their clothing intimately. We also don't think about them as um, economically as important to our local context and to our personal context. They aren't items generally for the vast majority of the public. They're not 
items that are of extreme value. Mm. And that's really a post-industrialization, commercialization economy situation. And then there's the sort of other component, which is how male fashion developed sort of mid-Victorian period and on. It just became a bit slower to change, a bit more staid, a mm. bit more muted. And whereas men used to be the drivers of fashion oh. through so many different time periods and were much more flamboyant in their appearance often than women, this really shifted with Victorian culture and fashion became tied to something that was seen as feminine and you know so there you yeah go. that's that's really fascinating but it makes me think of you know there have been those studies of women's hemlines and the economy you know the idea that um, the better the economy is doing the shorter the skirts like in the 60s and things yeah. so i guess there's been some sort of yeah there's definitely that. there's definitely things that are present in our scholarship i just think not yeah. as not as centered as it really needs yeah. to be so how would how would historians like you go about reconstructing what what people actually wore in the time of Jesus? Um, I mean, are the descriptions? I mean, trouble with with um, Jewish society is generally we're not getting many um, representations, are we? But um, yeah, <laughs> you know, where where do you get your information? And has any of it actually survived? Are we digging up textiles? We are digging up textiles. Um, we are digging up a lot of textiles there is a wealth of material. So that, I would say, is the number one place to start for mm -hmm. Jewish culture, because as you said, Helen, there just isn't an image repository to go to. Um, Jewish people of the first century-ish um, <laughs> didn't represent the human form, and so we don't have the same wealth of visual depiction as we have in their surrounding, the cultures that, that are surrounding them. That doesn't mean, I think this is an important thing to point out, that doesn't mean that we don't have images of Jews. Mm. There were large Jewish communities in Egypt and in Greece and in Rome, and these Jews were in many places integrated into those societies. We might very well have images of Jews, we just don't know because they're not identified as Jews. Mm. But from sort of the historic bounds of the land of Israel, we don't have mm. that imagery. So archaeological remains are our richest resource. And there are a number of sites throughout the Judean desert where we can find lots of preserved textiles. Um, and we have thousands, thousands. That's, yeah, that, thousands I mean, that's, yes. that's surprising wow. to me that the things would have lasted that long, but yeah. So what talk about some of these archeological finds and then what type of material have they recovered? You do need certain conditions to preserve textile. So the things that we do have preserved, so Jerusalem, for example, which is, um, I think just moister. I hate that word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dana, don't say it again. I just got the chill. More damp. It's like, yeah, it's more damp. Thank you. More thank you. Damp. It's a damper. It's a damper climate. Um, it just had like just wetter, you know, in wetter, the soil and sure. the atmosphere. And so things just don't survive as well. But in the desert areas, it's dry and things survive, especially if it's in caves or in tombs. Um, and this is a lot of our uh, textile remains come from caves. 
So do they come the from best- tombs like specifically? Because I didn't really think about that. Or is it just like shrouds and things? I uh, suppose is it? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Okay. But- and sometimes tombs that were unintentional tombs. So um, the Cave of Letters, which is a cave in Qumran that uh, is sort of up the cliffs towards the Masada Fortress, that has our that's produced our richest textile remains from the Roman era and actually from anywhere in the greater Roman empire from the oh, Roman wow. era. So these are the the best artifacts of clothing have come from the Cave of Letters. And the Cave of Letters was inhabited by people twice, once during the first revolt against Rome in 70 CE and again during the second revolt against Rome in 135-ish CE. And in that second one, that's where most of these remains come from. And the reason that we have them is because the people died in that cave. Hmm. So that's something I've been trying to think about a bit more hmm. in recent years, um, just to be aware of where the material hmm. comes from and why. Sure. sure. Wow. Well, so something you said earlier, how we, you know, what you're talking about images and how there's a lack of images of Jewish people, but that, you know, Jewish communities in some of these other parts of the Roman Empire were large and thriving. But when you look at the images, you might not be able to tell who is Jewish and who is not Jewish. Is that because yeah. Jewish people would not have been dressing much differently than other people in there in, in the Greco-Roman world? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's because they didn't dress very differently. So once you start to look at the textile remains and you see garments that match the greater Roman culture of dress at that time, particularly of the Eastern Mediterranean regions, you can then say, okay, I can actually use images produced Hmm. by other people and then draw information from those images to help supplement what we don't get just from from remains. Like we don't see how things are arranged on bodies on in remains, you know, um, or how a full garment assembled might look like if you only have pieces of it. Sure. So images are really, really important to um, to the work also, but it's just it's just that there is that difference. We do have a set of images produced for and by Jews from Dury Ropus in Syria, which would have been eastern border regions of the Roman Empire. Those come from like the mid-3rd century, and they too correspond to the textile remains that are earlier. Mm. So they do allow us also to see, yeah, there is this commonality in appearance. The idea that Jews dress differently, that there's something sort of almost an innate desire on the part of Jewish people to appear different mm. is, I would say, a really loaded way of thinking that comes mm. from an Orientalist framing and a projection of certain Jewish communities today back yeah. into the past. Yeah, no, I think that's super important. And I hope that's one of the big takeaways for our listeners um, when we say, like, what, you know, what did Jesus wear? What did Jesus look like? Or what did, you know, other his disciples and other members of the Jewish community look like? It sounds like you're saying they looked a lot like everybody else in in terms of of their dress. They did. Yeah. Yeah. And this should have been a thing that I think historians of the time period were more kind of aware of or started to 
to consider when thinking about things like the social world of the New Testament, um, because we have looked at all sorts of aspects of the social world of the New Testament and understood that they were Greco-Roman. And why would you, if you're, you know, you're a Jewish person in first century Judea, your house is very Greco-Roman in architectural style, in interior design, even in the colors on the walls, the things that foods that you are eating, the way that you are interacting with other people. Why would your clothing mm. be so hugely different and outside of that cultural norm? Mm. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So let's talk about some specifics then, um, particularly tunics. This is kind of like the statement piece. Um, this <laughs> yeah. is what everybody's wearing, isn't it? So, um, I mean, how what, what do they look like? And, and are the differences between men's tunics and women's tunics and sort of an elite person and a labourer? And, 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 and how do you wear your tunic? Does it just dangle or <laughs> a belt or...? <laughs> Um, yeah, so what we have learned from the archaeological remains is that tunics in first century time period were made from two sheets of fabric, rectangle in shape. And those two sheets, if you sort of hold one up so that the longer side of the rectangle goes down the sides of your body, that's the way that that would be the front piece. And then you would attach a back piece. And um, that'd be sewn across the shoulders, leaving room for a neck hole, and then sewn down the sides, leaving room for armholes. Mm -hmm. And once gathered at the waist with a belt, which was an important part of dressing, they would be wide enough that they'd give the illusion of sort of sleeves. Mm -hmm. So that a tunic was the basic garment of anybody in Greco-Roman antiquity. Sometimes you might wear a layer um, of two tunics on top of each other. You often wore some sort of outer garment, a mantle, um, which in addition to your tunic, but that's not quite the same thing as like a coat. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, your outerwear is still part of your everyday basic garment. So differences in gender are mostly around length. So women's tunics longer than men's tunics. And also those same differences are then magnified through class. So the poorer you are, the shorter your tunic is. And the wealthier you are, the longer your tunic is. You gotta work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to work. So, um, so if you're a man and your tunic generally falls just below your knee and that would be the sort of the elite length of a tunic. And if you are a very poor laboring man or an enslaved man, your tunic's going to be shorter than that. Whereas for women, an elite tunic would be down to the ankles and a poor woman's tunic is going to go up a bit from there. And then color. Yeah, color color is important. So yeah. Um, yeah, what kind of what kind of color is... palette did people have to choose from back then? A wide array of colors. I think this is one of the things I found the most kind of amazing when I first started looking at the archaeological remains is just how bright some of the hmm. colors are and how varied some of the colors are. You have pinks and greens and yellows and reds and purples and blue sometimes. Uh, there's a lot of white. White was very important. White's an elite color. So... When we look at the remains today, we don't see white, but that is due to age and degradation over time. So we are looking at a lot more things that look a bit yellowy, a bit beige, mm. but we need to try and picture them as white. So, um, and these all veg vegetable dyes and things like that. I mean, where are they getting their dyes from? 
So dyes could be a combination of um, vegetable or uh, mineral or animal. So the most prestigious dye is purpura, which is Tyrian purple. And that actually could produce a range of colors. One of the things that's really difficult when you read references to color in texts, they don't have the range of terminology that Mm. we have today. So they could say purple, but they actually mean what we might understand as a deep red. Um, Mm. Or they could say black, but what they actually mean is something brown. So that we have to think in, in ranges of hues. But Purpura comes from the H. trunculus mollusk, which is a sort of sea snail. Mm. And it would take 10,000 live snails to produce a single gram of dye. Oh, boy. And in order to get a really good, rich color, you need the equal amount of dye as the weight. So if you have 100 grams of wool, you need 100 grams of dye. Wow. So this is Wait, I can't do the math. That's a lot of snails. No wonder. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of snails. Um and then with your dye stuff, you often want a mordant with that. And so mordants are tins and alum, other sorts of metals that help uh create that color fast aspect of dye. So it really stays in the fabric. But depending on what mordant you use, it's again going to change the color and the hue of the dye. So one of the ways that we know that people were paying attention to color is you can, when you do analysis on a textile remain, I don't do this work. I just read the work of other people who are smarter at chemistry. Um, You can see attempts to counterfeit. So creating a color that would be produced from, say, the H. trunculus mollusk, but making it from indigo, Mm. which would be cheaper and easier to acquire. But you're still kind of attempting to replicate for yourself that elite mode of dress. So the poor people in society, they were not just wearing, you know, sackcloth. I think that's a thing that sure. a lot of people think, oh, it's it's a biblical past. Everything's roughly hewn and beige. Um, but no, they took a lot of care and time and effort in the thing that they wore on their body. And even if they could not produce what the elite are wearing, they are still producing something nice to wear. Can I ask you something that I have always wondered, <laughs> and I've sure. never found it. I've never found it in any book. Did they wear underwear? Mm. That's a really tricky one. I don't really know. A loincloth. I mean, it's a loincloth, basically, sort of. Well, what I would call yeah. underpants. I think this this <laughs> may again be an area where we have different different terminology, but underwear or or, or yeah. pants for women. I mean, there's that famous fresco of like the Greek woman exercising and she's wearing kind of like a strip along her breasts. And then what we would understand is like looking like underpants or briefs. Do you know what I'm referring to, Helen? No, I don't, but I'm going to go and have oh, a look. Okay. I've, I've, um, I've seen this and I don't know. I don't know why I've seen this, but yes, I've seen that too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Greek. Uh, 
I don't know of anything in the archaeological remains. I think one thing that's really important to point out is when I say there's thousands upon thousands of remains, a lot of these are fragments and they are small fragments. And most of them have not yet been cataloged or worked through or examined. And there's so many reasons for that. A lot of it having to do with prioritization. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, where does research funding go? So there might be like in a pile of remains somewhere, some evidence of undergarments of some variety, but I, I don't, I don't know. Katie, that's that's your next book. People will buy that book. (laughs) Ancient underwear. (laughs) It just writes itself. So I would get in there and and try to figure that out. I was, Helen, I was going to ask the same question because when I said to my wife, oh, we're doing an episode about clothes. She's like, do they wear underwear? That was the first thing that she said. So yeah, well, that's what I believe. People are super interested in the things about the past that Mm. we most relate to and so toilets are always really popular kitchens are always really popular um things like it does not surprise me that people are curious about (laughs) underwear well all right so if we're not gonna talk about underwear um we have the tunic and then you mentioned the mantle so i when i when Mm. when people say mantle or i think of of jesus and his mantle i don't know i'm picturing this this kind of wrap that goes around i'm like what what was the function of a mantle and were there all sorts of different types of mantles Please tell us about those. Yeah, so there are different types of mantles. Um, I would say mantle is just the sort of easiest catch-all term to describe what is effectively your outer garment, but not your outer wear. So your tunic is your primary garment. Sometimes you might have an under tunic, and on top of your tunic, you have some form of mantle. And in the Eastern Mediterranean region, of which Jews are part, it's predominantly a rectangle garment. So it's just a larger rectangle piece of cloth. And again, this is going to vary in size depending on wealth and how much you can afford to produce and also how much you can afford to wrap around your body and not have it be too much of a hindrance to your movement. Mm. So if you don't need to worry too much about how much you can wrap more, you know. Um, But I think it's also important to remember that some simply because it seems really complicated to us to conceive of doing a lot with a lot of fabric wrapped around your body doesn't mean that people who lived all the time in that reality mm. couldn't manage. And uh, I've seen some analogies made with people who wear saris today. Mm. And I think that's a great analogy because that is a wrapped and draped garment. And people who are very comfortable in their sari can do an awful lot in a lot of fabric. So um, so it's not the same sort of thing as like if they needed to do any kind of labor at all, they really had to get rid of their mantle. No. They might very well have been able to function, but we just don't have the intimate details of that. Yeah, well, so, well some, something that struck me when I read a description of it is like to tell us how it was, it was sort of wrapped around and it wasn't pinned, right? But kind of how was it held? Yeah, together? not pinned. Um, so you would have you take the rectangle and you would wrap it usually over your left shoulder and under your right arm, and then over again. There is an interesting detail in the Dura Europa Synagogue, the one that I had mentioned, which is mid-third century with um, Jewish depictions of the human form, where they the male figures have the mantle kind of wrapped a few more times around their wrist, hmm. um, which you don't see in other depictions. So this might have been unique to that community. Maybe it's an indication of a specific 
cultural tradition among Jewish people of how they wrapped their mantle, but you would have different ways of folding and draping so that it stayed in place. And folding and draping is it's really important in um, what it communicates to people. The common mantle I think that everybody is most familiar with when you think of antiquity is the toga. So the toga is the same sort of thing that we're talking about here. It is your outer garment that goes over your tunic. It is worn by male citizens of Rome. And this one is semicircular in shape. It's not Hmm. rectangular in shape. But again, it's over one shoulder, under the other arm. And Quintilian actually wrote like a whole guide on different ways to drape your mantle to communicate different things. And especially if you were doing a great oration in the Senate, then you would want to have your toga draped in a particular manner. So there seem to have been a lot of different traditions for how you would wear this garment. And it could definitely double um, for a blanket. It could provide extra warmth when that's needed. Um, for women, it could be an extra level of security. If she really needs to cover herself up, she can pull it up over her head and it provides a veil as well as a cover for the rest of her body. Sometimes we see it worn over both shoulders and held at the middle. There's a statue in the Met Museum of a Greek male figure, and he is wearing a rectangular mantle over his tunic. And he actually has a drop weight on the corner of one, you know, one of the four corners of the rectangle. And the drop weight hangs at the back at the rear. And so that's clearly helping hold that mm. draping in place. That's cool. So that's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And what about, we do hear of sort of Jewish articles of clothing, like, you mm-hmm. know, a, a tallit. Is, is that yeah. a kind of mental or? Yes. A, a, yes, exactly. So the tallit is the Jewish mantle. Um, that would be a rectangle. And so when we have the idea of seat seat, which is fringes, attaching fringes to the four corners of your garment, those are the four corners that are being referenced, that rectangular outer garment that you wear over your tunic. So we have decorations on mantles in a lot of the archaeological remains that actually map paintings that we see from Egypt. So I don't... so. I'm not saying these are specific to Jewish mantles because it seems to have been a feature of Eastern Mediterranean dress more broadly, but you will have this large rectangle and then in the four corners woven into the fabric rather than fringes attached to the corners are um, two symbols which were common. One that's sort of like, if you imagine the letter H, but the center of it is really stretched out. then that would be one. And the other looks kind of like an, a backwards L. Not really sure. Hmm. Why, there's been some um, hmm. attempt to attribute one of the decorations to women's mantles and the other to men's mantles. <laughs> yes, uh, it does. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not sure that that is like totally provable. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I guess mean, it gets back to our conversation about, you know, did Jewish people in Jesus's time dress differently? Like, again, from what you can tell, were this was the Talit kind of mantle different than anybody else's mantle? Like when, again, when you see movies with Jesus walking around, sometimes they seem to be wearing what we recognize as a more modern day kind of, you know, Jewish uh, Talit. But would that yeah. have been the case? Yeah. Uh- <laughs> 
No, that's inappropriate. No. That is, um, I would put that in that same sort of function of Orientalism, this idea of um, Jewish people having this kind of ahistorical nature to them, the same way we think about you know Bedouin people, that they just never change over time. Mm. Modern Tali Tote are modern. They have developed over time in response to developments in the Jewish community and culture. Talits from the first century really were just these rectangular mantles that were worn by other people in the broader Eastern Mediterranean culture. Even Roman citizens, if they were coming to the Eastern Mediterranean, would often avoid wearing the toga in favor of, they would refer to it as a pallium. Uh, the Greek word is hematian, the Hebrew word talit, mm. because they were a bit lighter they were less cumbersome, and so they were just preferred garments. Whether there was something distinctly Jewish about the mantles that Jews were wearing remains a really interesting question to me that I don't have a great yeah, answer yeah. on. Because we have this biblical prescription to wear seat seat that comes from, I just want to, I'm so bad at chapter and verse off the top of my head, so I've noted <laughs> it down. Um but so that comes from Numbers 15, 38 through 9 and Deuteronomy 22, 11. And those prescribe the attaching of tassels or fringe to the four corners of one's garment. We don't have any archaeological evidence of this. We have mantles, but they don't have any tzitzit. Mm. We don't have anything that can be considered tzitzit. It's a really weird absence. Philo and Josephus both are, you know, Jewish writers writing in the first century. They spend time talking about clothing and appearance. They talk about another dress law, which is the law of Sha'atnats, and that has to do with mixing fibers. Mm. They don't, neither of them mention seat. Why is this not mentioned? But we do have it mentioned in the New Testament um, about Jesus's clothing and about the clothing of the Pharisees. Hmm. So the question of what exactly is going on there, if we have no evidence, limited discussion, but it's a repeated feature in discussions of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, well, that's the book after your next book. Okay, well, yeah. yeah. You got a lot of work <laughs> to do. You need more people working on this <laughs> is what we need. It can't just be Katie yeah. people. Cool. Well, we, we, we did get an email i got a message from one of our time travelers club members uh from jacob and this is something that we did we did bring this up with uh with joan but i want to get your take on it because in every depiction of jesus he's wearing what you know some people would call jesus sandals um mm -hmm. <laughs> is that what everybody wore as footwear in the ancient world was there any other option or is this like you just went to the shoe store and it was like you want a jesus sandal or a jesus sandal um, sandals. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of sandals. <laughs> so the remains that we have are leather sandals. The style of the straps are kind of like a flip-flop. So something connects to the base in between, um, the toes. Hmm. And then you get two straps that come down kind of like a V across mm -hmm. the foot. And then with like a heel strap at the back. Uh, but the addition to sandals that we should be seeing are socks. They wore socks? <laughs> <Yeah>. Really? <laughs> Yeah, really. It was us. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so, like, 
wooly knit socks in fun colors. I have really? some images. I don't know if I can share a screen and I could show you, but um, it's not great for the listeners. It's bad for the podcast. Yeah, I know, but if you I know. If afterward, if you send me <laughs> um, something, I'll, I'll put the links in the yeah. Uh, maybe like put it on a link. Um, well, they, how does how does that work with a flip flop thing? Because the, that they are is the problem split in the toe. <laughs> cool. They have a toe split. Um, oh, wow. So I think you need to think about it more the way we think about like sandals and socks in Japanese culture, which is very much a thing. Um, oh. But yeah, so there are a number of examples that have survived from ancient Egypt that are, I mean, it's just, I look at some of them and I think I, I'm not a really competent knitter, but I could knit that. Like it's <laughs> thick and woolly and comes in... Um, Lots of different colors. Some are stripey, so you just get like stripes of colors. That's amazing. That's now amazing. that is something that has yeah. never showed <laughs> up in any of these yeah. depictions. Um, I want to see the no. the disciples, the disciples of the like Last Supper with their <laughs> socks. colored socks. Yeah, That'd yeah. be amazing. Yeah. And are, are they knitted? Then is that how you make them? Yeah, they're knitted. Um, they are like ankle height. There is a um, there's a mummy portrait from Roman era Egypt, and you can see the full body on this one. And it's a woman, and so her tunic comes down to like mid calf, and then you can see her sock her and her sandal. Socks. And yeah. uh, just in case somebody says, "Okay, everything you've talked about is Egypt," there have been remains of knit socks found in Masada. So it is. Um, it seems to be throughout the region, and I would love to see Jesus in socks and sandals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If any like film costume designer is listening, <laughs> yeah. So Mary is well. knitting him socks at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it gets cold. It gets cold in in, sure. in, does. in Israel, doesn't yeah. it? And and also, I mean, if you've got a new pair of sandals, they might they might sort of chafe your feet a bit. So it makes sense mm-hmm. to wear socks. Wow. Yeah, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. I mean, it protects your feet as well. So, yeah. I mean, there's a thing where the um where you know when Jesus is calling the disciples and they remove their shoes and they go barefoot. I don't know if when that's like being written are they thinking through socks as well? Like are they removing <laughs> the shoe and the sock and going barefoot or is barefoot with a sock on? Yeah. Socks are so, given. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, gosh, I, I I hope we go viral just because of that. People are like, wait a second, socks. <laughs> no one has thought of that. You hear, heard it yeah, here. Heard it here first, folks. <laughs> so this is a question that only I can ask because uh, it's <laughs> easy. It's a, it's a delicate question for Dave. But um, what about what about hair? <laughs> what did how how did what people is hair? wear their hair? <laughs> <laughs> the men did they did the men have sort of you know was it the augustus cut or was it you know long flowing robes uh, lo- long flowing ro- locks and and mm. what about the women what were they looking at the the sort of elite women or what was going on there um yeah so for men short hair was most common oh. and a clean shaven face there was a fashion for beards, particularly among like philosophers or people who wanted to be part of that kind of intellectual set uh, that was associated with Greek fashion, not necessarily Roman fashion. So it is important to just continue to stress that there are variations through Mm -hmm. this Mediterranean region. But by the time we get to the first century, like you might still have some men holding on to a a beard as a philosopher motif, maybe if Jesus is in a kind of 
modeling himself in that kind of mode. He's doing the same, but this would be a short beard. When by the time we get to the Dura Europa synagogue, we don't really see that on any of the images. Mm. These are beardless men, short hair, and that's really in keeping with the most common fashion. It isn't until Hadrian that beards come into fashion because he goes up into Britain. It's colder. Um, People had beards there. He grew a beard too. He came back. He brought his beard to Rome. And people are like, hmm, beards. Hmm, beards. Mm. So so long, <laughs> like a, a Jesus with long hair and a, and a kind of a longer beard. Are we then? Yeah, no, that's, that's very not. much. This comes later. This is, um, Joan actually talks about this in her book, What Did Jesus Look Like? And I think her summary is a great summary. So if somebody wants to understand how Jesus ends up with long hair and a beard, mm. um, it is part of the development of imagery of Christ as people are thinking through who is this figure that we are believing in what how do we communicate the various facets of his nature and as he comes to be understood as god he starts to take on aspects of representational traditions for other god figures Mm -hmm. such as zeus and zeus had long hair and a beard so um that's really important to the development of Christian imagery, imagery and the tradition of Christian imagery, but it's not part of the historical first century. Short hair, it would have been, I mean, that's the most common thing that we can really point to is short hair. And we actually have Josephus chastises King Herod um, for being clean shaven and well-groomed with his hair on his head finely cropped when he is a young man and he's going to trial before the Sanhedrin and when you are in trouble, you're supposed to adopt the kind of look of somebody who's in mourning. You don't, in order to show that you understand the seriousness of the situation that you're in. And so Herod should have gotten a bit stubbly and let his hair be a bit messy. Um, <laughs> and instead, he showed up all finely fashionable and, you know, tip top shape. And that was very unseemly. So um, Josephus criticizes him. But in that critique, we have this reaffirmation of that's how men appeared. And we know that Herod dyed his hair black, don't we? Josephus says, right, when he died yep. age 70 or whatever, that, that he dyed his hair. Yeah, so. Herod is like super into his appearance. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. he would have been an influencer or something today, wouldn't he? <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, he definitely took pride in what he looked like um to the point i mean to the degree of like shunning the kind of social norms of decorum so yeah so we know short hair for men generally beardless for men women took a lot of different styles to their hair um especially elite women who had a lot of time there's a lot of writing about what women look like or what women should look like you get roman moralists who are like women should be blah 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 but thank um, god that's out of style (laughs) i know (laughs) uh so it's really important that we understand that like clothing and appearance and the images left over of women and the lower classes are the texts that they have left behind about their own lives because we don't have written texts from these people And because this is such an intimate form of communication, what you put on your body, how you how you dress, what your appearance is like, women took pride in that. And they crafted 
norms for themselves that weren't necessarily the norms that the Roman moralists would have liked to see elite women adhering to. So big, ostentatious hair fashions for the wealthiest women in society. Lots of buildup at the front. Um, Wigs and hair pieces would be part of this to give it all its appearance. And we can imagine that women were veiling. When you look at a lot of statues or imagery, you can actually see just from the way the hairstyle is, there's a lot like over the forehead, there's a lot of height. And then the back of the head, there's a lot less going on. Mm -hmm. And it does give the impression that there's space for a veil to sit in the hairstyle. Um, But in general probably less veiling in Rome than in the eastern reaches of the Mediterranean, but veiling is definitely part of hair. The other thing that we have are hair nets. There's a um, really well-known fresco of a woman that's identified as Sappho. Whether it's Sappho or not, who knows? It's just an attribution. But we see this woman with a gold hair net over her hair. And... um, there are lots of examples of hairnets in the archaeological remains from the Judean desert. So we know this was part of how women were styling their hair. And sometimes they are dyed to be similar to hair color. So the hairnet is just helping keep that hairstyle all in place. And other times it is standing out. So hair up is really important. And this is a major thing we do not see in Jesus. We see a lot of hair down in Jesus films. And that just would not have been the case for women. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's fascinating. You mentioned veiling. Um, so let's, yeah, let's let's. I, I when I hear veiling, I always picture like some like a veil that we think of today as something covering sort of their their face. So mm-hmm. when when Paul talks about you know veiling and not veiling, or men shouldn't veil, women should veil, all that stuff. Like, yeah. what what was he talking about? And then what? You know, is there any kind of head covering that men would have worn? Again, like modern Jews mm. might wear a, a, a kippot or something like that. But was that something that yep. existed back then? Um, I'll start with women. Women in the Eastern Mediterranean veiled. It was what you did. And that's not unique to Jews. Um That's not a feature we might think about as a feature of Orientalism, projecting back into antiquity, what we see through a lot of, you know, Eastern Mediterranean and Middle Eastern culture today. That comes down to how we are thinking about the veil, whether we're having that little Orientalist motif in there. Mm. But it, it was very much part of Eastern Mediterranean culture in antiquity for a long time and in various forms. There isn't a set, like, This is what veiling is. Mm. So sometimes veiling could be, as I mentioned already, pulling up your mantle up over your head. But more like a a hood? Like just just sort of the top of the head? Yeah, if you think about like taking a towel and taking the long side of the rectangle over your shoulders, but then lifting it from your shoulders up over your head. Mm. So it's draped that way and then holding it with your hand at the front. That would be one method of veiling. Um, particularly, I think, for women who are on the lower rung of the social ladder and maybe don't have the money for additional items of fabric, additional item, additional garments. 
Um, I've seen the argument be made by a few scholars that veiling might very well have been just the purview of the elite. And so women lower down might have been denied the ability to veil. So if you were an enslaved woman, you might have been denied the ability to veil because Mm. veiling was a status symbol and a show and it also was a form of safety for a woman in a public in a public space. Mm. So um there's a great book by Lloyd Llewellyn Jones oh, we called know Aphrodite's <laughs> Friend Tortoise. Friend of the podcast, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um yeah, he did a study on veiling in know. and he looks at classical Greece. Um but he traces like the different styles of veiling, different types of veiling. He doesn't go as far as the Roman era. Which is unfortunate. I want him to just <laughs> oh, just a hundred years later, Lloyd. Please huh. just <laughs> extend. <laughs> um, but it's a really comprehensive book, and so many visual images that he gives so we can really understand the different types of veiling styles that are happening in the archaeological record. We can definitely find shawls and veils, so uh, fabrics that are finer. Mm. Um, more colorful, some with very long fringe ends that would have been used for for women to cover their heads when they were out in public. There's some references also in like really early Talmudic literature that point to the idea that there are different styles availing depending on where Jews are living. Mm. Um, so we can think about this as sort of localized culture, right? Like what's the cultural norm in your area and most appropriate for your social class? So sometimes it's an additional item. Sometimes it's not an additional item. Sometimes maybe the hairnet was enough to constitute a covering of a woman's head. So there's, yeah, I think there's just an awful lot that we could talk about with women and head coverings. And like you said, it's it's well, it's wide, it's widespread throughout the Mediterranean, particularly the Eastern Mediterranean. So there's not, we shouldn't Mm -hmm. be attaching religious significance to it in the sense of no, we should not cover their heads for like Jewish women need to cover their heads or something like that. Yeah, no, this is not a way of identifying a Jewish person. Maybe there was something about the way that Jewish women in Judea veiled that might identify them as, like, being from that broader culture. Maybe there was something about the way that Jewish men wore their mantle that identified them as being from that culture. But these are, like, intimate aspects of dressing that are lost to us. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just don't really know. We know that these are those are negotiations that are definitely happening at that time, but we couldn't say what they are, what the specifics are. For men, no head coverings. Okay. Male head covering as part of Jewish tradition, so broadly speaking, a yarmulke or kippot, is something that emerges in the later medieval period. It actually comes after... Western Christendom requires Jewish men to wear head coverings to identify them as Jews. So that part of the sort of broader Christian association of Jews and head covering is something they created Hmm. um, before it was part of Jewish ritual practice itself. Oh, wow. Okay. So... In the first century, men did not generally cover their heads. We have lots of examples of hats that are like functional hats. So something you might wear to keep the sun out or something you might wear to keep the rain off your head. But that's not the same as like a ritual item that you wear all the time as part of your identity. There's nothing like that for men. 
when some aspects of Roman cultic practice involved veiling, so taking, because it'd be a toga instead of a a rectangular mantle, taking the edge of the toga and pulling that over the head. I think that when Paul says that men should not cover their heads, whereas many people have interpreted that for a very long time as Paul distancing from Jewish practice, I think he's actually distancing from non-Jewish practice. Mm -hmm. He's telling Gentile converts, this isn't something that we do. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we know about Jews in antiquity is they drew borders between themselves and the broader non-Jewish wider culture. There were things, even if they're dressing and behaving, they're still doing little things, little moderations in their behavior and their dietary practice and who they dine with in their homes. So we see aspects of interior decoration in a home that are clearly similar to things happening in Pompeii, but without the human imagery, Mm. right? So this is a way of, Mm -hmm. of participating in the culture, but still having that differentiation, that thing that is specific to Jewish culture. So I think because we know that veiling was happening in Roman ritual spaces for men, that is highly unlikely that Jewish men were doing the same. And so Paul is making that distinction. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really interesting interpretation and, and makes sense. Yeah. But we have no reason to assume that he's drawing a line away from Jewish practice because there is nothing. And when we look at the Dura Europis paintings, there's no male head covering happening there. Not even in, we have Samuel anointing David as one of the images being depicted. So that's a ritual context and there's no head covering in that anointing happening. So I think that's, that's really important to stress. For the temple priesthood, the... We have many passages in Torah that tell us what the temple priests are supposed to wear, and that includes a head covering. The Hebrew word mitznefet implies something that's wrapped. So what it looked like, don't know. But (laughs) it's also really, really clear. It's made, it's repeated a number of times that the priestly vestments must be removed before going to the place where the people are. So heading out of the like inner area of the temple. So whether the priesthood swapped their headdress for something else that still identify them as priests when in public, who knows? Mm. Josephus doesn't mention it. Mm. Nobody else mentions it. So I'm operating on the no. <laughs> they dressed like everybody else. Yeah, once they left the the temple precincts and their um, their priestly vestments were left behind in the temple, and that's the only sort of Jewish male hat that I can point to, which is the headdress that the high priest is supposed to wear, and then the similar but smaller headdresses that the rest of the priesthood wear, but only in that specific context. In the same way that, like, we wouldn't see the Archbishop of Canterbury going to Sainsbury's <laughs> wearing his big bishop's hat, you know? Um, this was an analogy that Joan made years ago, and I thought mm-hmm. it was hilarious, mm-hmm. so I'd love to pull that one out. But, yeah, we wouldn't see yeah. Typhus walking around Jerusalem in 
in the thing he's supposed to wear in the Holy of Holies. Right. And and the Romans kept onto it, didn't they? So they only they released did, yeah. it just before the festival, so he couldn't That's have done right. it if he'd wanted to. But it, it makes perfect sense that the, the, the priests didn't do that either that that right. i mean may, maybe they've not got enough of the the vestments anyway maybe they're sort of all sharing them and they just wear whatever's available at the time yeah who knows i'm picturing like a little locker room at the temple that yeah <laughs> so am i <laughs> there is a changing there of there is a room what? yeah no there's a there's a chamber room where they where they are meant to dress i have I mean, I don't think that it had like lockers. <laughs> there had to be lockers wow. with their names on each one and their things hanging. Right, but right. yeah, there's there's a room. Oh, well, that'd be sweet. All right. Well, okay. So we've we've gotten to the point, and maybe you want to see the ancient locker room. But uh, we have <laughs> we have a time machine, Katie. You could mm-hmm. you can go back and you can verify and you could you could bring your phone and take pictures of what everybody looked like and you could prove it once and for all. So where? And when would you go in our time machine if you had a chance? If I had a chance to go in a time machine. So I know I should answer the sort of historian answer. I might mm. go to the period that I study. But the I was thinking about this quite a bit. And the older <laughs> I get, the more I have this wish to kind of travel back to places that are part of my personal history. Mm. So sometimes I really wish I could just go and visit my son again when he was like four years old and just hang out for an afternoon. (laughs) You know, sometimes I wish I could go meet my grandfather when he was Mm. a young man growing up in Brooklyn. Um, There, But I think the thing that is the most sort of the place that I would go in that vein of thinking is um, where my family came from in the Pale of Settlement. And where? I'm really, really... The Pale of Settlement. So that's the area of Eastern Europe that Jewish people were confined to live in. Mm. Um, It stretches from what is now Lithuania into Poland and Russia and Ukraine and Belarus and down that whole little corridor. Yeah, I'd never heard that term Um, before. No, I've not. Yeah, so uh, there's lots of... you know. Have you heard the phrase, beyond the pale? Yes. Yeah. It's linked to this idea of the Pale of Settlement. So so by the time you get to sort of early modern, modern era, this is where the majority of Ashkenazi Jews are living. And my family fled in the interwar period um, because of pogroms and other such violence. And a lot of the Jewish communities in like through that whole region were decimated by the Bolshevik revolution and then by subsequent pogroms. And then the Nazis came in and they were like, whatever, it hasn't been destroyed yet. We are going to flatten entirely. Mm. So there is a sort of I've been thinking about this a lot recently with current events, but there's a, a trauma of refugees. And when you are forced out of your home and the place that you know, and that trauma gets passed down. And my great grandmother never wanted to leave. She would have stayed forever if she mm. she wasn't like an economic migrant, you know. And so she would complain to my grandmother all the time about the about home. She never, New York, I guess, kind of became home, but never fully. Mm. And so I grew up listening to my grandmother complain about a home (laughs) that she had never seen. Mm. 
And I think this is something that like anybody who's a descendant of a refugee anywhere in the world can understand this idea. And sometimes you get to go back to that place and visit. And one of the things about Ashkenazi Jewry is that for the vast majority of us, we can never go back because those places literally do not exist anymore. Mm. They just were wiped off the map. And I think this is something a lot of Palestinian people can also understand. So um, I want to see it. Okay, I've spent my whole life hearing about the community, the people, the fact that all of my extended family who ended up either, I mean, killed or um, spread through different places in the world, uh, we're all at one point together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, to see what that was I'm just like. so, yeah. I'm so interested in it. And uh, yeah, so I know it's totally off topic, but that is... No, that's great. We'll send you back. That's where I would go. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could. I really do. I know, like, you're going somewhere with violence, and it's not the most, like, enjoyable sort of clothing history period. Um <laughs> But yeah, I just want to experience it. So oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Katie. This has been fascinating. Uh, thank you, Helen, and thank you to our listeners. And we will see you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Biblical Time Machine, consider supporting us by subscribing to our Time Travelers Club. Find out more in the episode description below.